people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Well, been an interesting week, don't you think? Start this week out, uh, actually last week out, a thousand point drop on the Dow Jones Industrials. Now that was uh, intraday. It actually ended the day down more around 600 than than the 1,000. But it was interesting to to watch. It was also um, somewhat anxious to watch. I, I admit that. Uh, but I, I knew uh, what was happening and, and what the, the longer-term uh, view of that would be. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But something happened uh, Monday morning in the market that I have not seen in 35 years uh, being in the investment uh, world, and that is there was absolutely no liquidity. Now, whenever anything trades on the exchange, there always has to be two parties, a buyer and a seller. Makes sense. And there's always a a, uh, a little bit of a spread between the sale price and the buy price so that the people that are initiating the transaction or or uh, uh, making the transaction happen, uh, get paid. And generally that, that spread is, is nominal. A couple pennies, maybe one cent, depending on the trade. Monday, that spread, that, that difference between the bid and the ask, between the sale and the buy, reached over 30%. And that tells us no liquidity. There were no buyers. It reminded me of uh, auctions. Uh, my wife and I go to sales every once in a while, go to auctions. And when the auctioneer wants to sell something, he starts with uh, a high price, uh, a price that that he thinks the item he's selling is worth. And everybody's standing around with their hands in their pockets. Nobody bids, nobody bids. The price keeps coming down, keeps coming down, keeps coming down, until finally somebody says, yeah, okay, I'll pay that for it. Hoping to 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 essentially get a deal, get it get a bargain. Well, the S&P 500 index ETF uh Monday uh started out at uh 192, $192 a share, and the buyer wanted uh to pay 147. Big big discrepancy. And uh uh, it, it was just unbelievable. I've never seen that kind of a, a spread in the bid and the ask uh, to that level. And there was absolutely no liquidity. Now, later in the day, later in the morning, back very soon, within an hour or so, that started to shrink and things started getting back to to normal in the sense of the spreads 
and uh, how transactions were happening. But in the first five minutes of Monday, um, the, the market did three times, three times a normal day's volume and uh, tremendous volume for the day. Tremendous. So that was very, very frightening for some people. And uh, we'll talk about the causes or the potential causes, possible causes of that in a minute. But um, it, it, it was very, very frightening. And uh, it carried over into Tuesday. Now, if you watch the market on Tuesday, another very interesting thing happened. Futures were up. Market was up. Market was up all day. All day until 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock, the market tanked. Went from a plus 300 position to a negative 200 position. Oh, I mean, just very, very quickly, a matter of minutes. Now, part of the reason that happened wasn't so much a lack of liquidity this time, although that's always part of the equation when when prices go down. But what happened, I think, at least partly, was Monday night, everybody got home, checked their screens. Everybody got home from work, they checked their 401k accounts and said, oh my goodness, we're way down. And the news, of course, is saying, well, it's going to go down again. This is the beginning of the end. Prepare for the zombies, uh, batten down the hatches, all that kind of stuff. And they got on their computers and they put in sell orders. We've talked about mutual funds in the past, and mutual funds only trade at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And mutual fund companies have to liquidate those shares at 4 o'clock of that day. So they need cash on hand. And in the normal course of business, they got plenty of cash. It's no big deal uh, for redemptions. But uh, they know ahead of time how many... uh, redemptions are going to have for the day and at three o'clock i think mutual funds decided oh boy we better start raising some cash because we got a truckload of redemptions coming in an hour and we better sell off some stuff and so they sold off a lot of holdings in order to raise the cash to provide for those redemptions now once again in this cycle that happened this week It was interesting to see the logistics, the mechanics of what was going on, but it was also interesting to see the investor psychology of what was going on, how people react. And it reminded me of my my days back in college. Uh, No, it was not a one-room college, but close. Okay, we did did, uh, do our homework with... uh, hammer and chisel and stone, but uh, we did have more than one room. Anyway, it reminded me back then that that, uh, there's a couple economic theories out there um, about investor uh, behavior during difficult times in the market. And one is called the denominator factor or denominator blindness. And what happens is people look at the numerator on the number and not the denominator. For example, when people were surveyed and they were given that uh, a number um, about cancer and which statistic is riskier for people with cancer, they were told that it kills 1,286 people out of 10,000 versus 
killing 24.14 people out of 100, which is worse. The vast majority of people feel the 24.14 deaths out of 100 due to cancer was much worse than the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it was reversed. The, the, the 1,286 out of 10,000 was much worse than the 24.14 out of 100, when indeed the 24 is almost double the mortality rate than the other number. But they see the big number. They see the big numerator, and they don't look at the denominator. When the market is down 500 points, 600 points, like it was Monday, uh, that that's less than than uh, uh, just just a couple of percent. I remember 1987 when the market was down 25 percent in one day. So a thousand point move on the market today is only six and a half percent. So people get tied up in the the numerator and not the denominator, and that causes their view to be very short and causes them to make extreme decisions, which is the other economic theory, the the behavioral theory, that people tend to make extreme decisions based on very thin, flimsy information. A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about some of that flimsy information that people are misinterpreting. But the point is that in study after study, People will tend to make an extreme decision on either very thin data or data that has no relation to the outcome of the decision. For example, two groups were asked to make an evaluation of a group of students' probable GPA. And they were given one piece of information. One group was giving the percentage, the the decile of the different students, whether they were in the 90%, whether they were in the 80, 70, and so on, and to, and to predict what their grade point average would likely be. The other group was given the same 90, 80, 70, 60 percentiles, but it was a ranking of that student's sense of humor. And both groups predicted the GPA to be almost identical. Now, sense of humor... Well, one could probably make the case that has to do with GDP, but in reality, it does not. So people have a tendency to make these extreme decisions based on very thin pieces of information. This week, the thin piece of information was all the news about China. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show about what really happened in China and some of the things that they're doing and how it's being interpreted. And, uh, of course, since it's my show, I'm going to give you my opinion of what I think um, or how we should interpret what's going on in China. In China. But first, we're going to talk about another thing that happened Monday and Tuesday, and that's a lovely thing called a margin call. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I don't know how many of you invest in the stock market using margin, but if you do, you probably had a couple interesting phone calls this week from your broker or broker-dealer. Margin, first of all, let me describe what that is. It's if you own securities, essentially stocks or bonds, generally speaking, you can borrow money against those using those as collateral to borrow money and buy other securities. So let's say you have $100,000 worth of stocks. In today's regulations, Reg T will allow you to borrow about 50% of the value of those stocks. So let's say you got 100,000 and you borrow 50%. So you borrowed 50,000, you can invest then that 50,000 in additional securities. So you're really using somebody else's money to invest in securities. And the interest rate today is is fairly reasonable. It's in the 4, 5, 6% range depending on the broker and and the the bank behind it. But what happens is when that $100,000 goes down in value, you're no longer at 50%. So let's say that 100000 goes down to 80000 50% of 80000 is 40. Well, you've got 50 borrowed against it. So if you owe 50 and your limit is 40, you get a phone call. And the phone call essentially says, uh, you're in violation of margin requirements, and you have X number of days, generally one to three, to either sell off some securities and bring your your margin ratio back in line with the regulations, or you can write us a check for $10,000 to get us back in line. It's called a margin call. Now, this is essentially part part of what caused the the big crash in the stock market in 1929. Back then you could borrow up to 98% of the value of your stock. So if you had 100,000 back in 1929, you could borrow an additional 98,000 and invest it. And if the market went down 3%, you had a margin call. People didn't want to write checks, so they sold off securities, which caused the market to go down further, which caused more margin calls, which caused people to sell securities, and you can see the spiral. You can see how that would feed on itself and cause all kinds of problems. Eventually, you reach a point where you just simply default on the margin. Well, margin loans and margin securities have been increasing in recent years as quantitative easing has been out there. And we all know what quantitative easing really does, pumps up the stock market. So every time quantitative easing was announced, every time quantitative easing was experienced, the market went up. And that's why you see the the commentary and the headlines about quantitative easing helped Wall Street, it didn't help Main Street, helped the rich get richer, all that kind of stuff. 
Well, as that happened, as assets go up, it makes sense, sort of, on paper, it makes sense to borrow money to buy securities. And then it also makes sense to use those securities as collateral for margin loans, but also there's been a huge spike in using securities for other type of loans, what we call security-based loans, billions, tens of billions of dollars is outstanding at different banks, major banks. We're not talking your, your local regional bank necessarily, although it's available to them. But I'm talking about the big, big investment banks, the Morgan Stanleys, the Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Those guys are big enough to do securities-based loans. So you put up your securities as collateral to the bank, and then they loan you money, and you can go do whatever you want with the money. You can buy a house. You can consume it. It has become kind of the new home equity line loans. Securities have been going up significantly during quantitative easing. Every time the securities go up, essentially gives you more collateral to use as loans so you can borrow more money. Interest rates are low, so it makes sense to use cheap money to invest. If you can make more money than the interest is causing, uh, costing you, that's called a positive arbitrage. Now, when the market takes a tank like it did this last week, now it recovered some, but... Monday and Tuesday, there were some very nervous borrowers out there fearing that they would get a margin call or a loan call. And some of them did. Some of them did. Some of them didn't have a very good day. Now the market started recovering and we got back into a line and everything was uh, kosher again. But it uh, caused a little heartburn for a little while. Up next, I want to talk about China. We're seeing all kinds of headlines about China selling off our treasuries. Let's take a look and see what that means. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. You know, I've heard so many stories, read so many stories about China this week. It makes me long for Greece to be back in the headlines. That's how bad it's gotten. Monday and Tuesday, the market uh, was very volatile, lack of liquidity, market down significantly, and everybody's blaming what's happening in China. And then the next part of that is people are saying, okay, the zombies are coming because China is selling off uh, the treasuries, the United States treasuries that they own. Well, let's take a look at those scenarios. Um, Yeah, you know, China is the second largest economy in the world, and their economy is slowing down. Now, that doesn't surprise me at all. I've been in business 35 years doing this. And for probably 34 of those years, I've been saying, I don't trust any of the numbers coming out of the Pacific Rim. It's very common 
to have two sets of books over there and and tell people what you think they want them to hear. And let us not forget, let us not forget that China is communist China. And everybody's afraid afraid of telling their boss uh, bad numbers. So the factory manager tells his boss numbers he thinks he wants to hear. That guy embellishes them, moves them up the ladder, moves them up the ladder. By the time they get all the way up to the top, the numbers are so distorted that they're essentially meaningless. But the government puts them out anyway. Does any of us really believe that the Chinese economy continues to grow at 7% annualized rate? No. And it's starting to slow down. What happens is you can tell everybody you're growing at 7%, but sooner or later somebody's going to start checking the the books from the standpoint of what you're buying and what you're selling. China uses 50% of the world's coal. Well, if they're stopped buying coal, if they're not buying as much, well, it tells you that their economy is slowing down. If they're not using as much electricity, they're slowing down. If they're not using as much oil, it's slowing down. Well, it's been slowing down for quite some time. But it reached a point where people decided, many people decided, that that's an issue in our stock market, in our economy, and they started fueling the emotion. Monday and Tuesday sell-off was really just emotion. There was no fundamental reason for it. There's articles out there. There's uh, blog entries out there that will say otherwise. But the fact is there was no reason for the sell-off. Out of the S&P 500, 484 stocks were negative. 484 out of 500. You're telling me that virtually all of the companies in the Fortune 500 are affected that much by China's economy. No, not buying it. Now, I don't have the time tonight to go into the conspiracy theory behind the manipulation of the market. When the market's going up tremendously, everybody says it's being manipulated. Well, why wouldn't it be manipulated going down if it's manipulated going up? I'm not saying it is. Don't get me wrong. Don't interpret it that way. I'm just saying manipulation works both ways or it can work both ways. Now, the bigger news, bigger headlines coming out of China is that they're selling off U.S. Treasuries. Now, they had a currency devaluation in the last several weeks, and we see news reports where they're propping up their currency. What are they propping it up with? They have to use dollars. They own, did own, about $1.4 trillion of our debt. That does not bother me bothers me that we owe anybody 1.4 trillion it doesn't bother me that we owe china 1.4 trillion we own japan about 1.3 trillion we got 18 and a half trillion dollars in national debt which by the way side note side note still has not gone up one dollar since the middle of march we have not 
gone in debt one more dollar, according to the official records, since the middle of March. Anyway, so they've got $1.4 trillion of their debt, our debt. They have to raise dollars. What are they going to do? They're going to sell off some of that debt. Now, that doesn't bother me because the federal government does not buy it back. They have to sell it to somebody else. Doesn't matter to me who owns the debt. Does it matter if China owns the debt or uh, somebody else? Doesn't matter. Just doesn't matter. Now, what does matter, not nearly as much as what people think, but what does matter when China has to sell off debt to raise dollars. It goes back to the liquidity discussion. They have to accept what people are willing to pay for it. Now, bonds, if you remember, we've talked about this. As the price of bonds go down, the interest rate um, gets greater for the investor. Interest rates go up. It's like a teeter-totter. So when they're selling off their existing treasuries, they're getting a smaller price for them because the buyer isn't willing to pay full price because they know they don't have to, and they want a higher interest rate. So what that does, it establishes kind of a new baseline price for the moment, for the moment, worldwide, for our debt. And it makes the interest rate go up. Now, that's not a big deal, not not nearly as big a deal as some of the pundits and writers out there would have you believe. It's, it makes our debt a little bit more expensive to our federal government when they issue new debt. But that's not a big deal either because interest rates are so low. The big argument is by doing that, China is preventing uh, new treasury issues and other existing treasury issues. Keeps them from their interest rate going even lower. Could that have an effect on the stock market? Eh, not really. Not really. The flight to safety, when when people get nervous in the market, they, they have what they call a flight to safety, and they sell off securities and buy government treasuries because that's absolutely safe. People are willing to receive negative interest rates on flight to safety. They're, they're willing to pay more than par for these bonds. So the fact that China is selling off some of the bonds that they hold, and they sell them through brokers in Belgium and, and Switzerland, we don't really know who ends up owning them or buying them. And it really doesn't matter, certainly not to me. But uh, this week it came out, they sold off, I don't know, close to a couple hundred billion dollars of the debt uh, that they own that belongs to our government. So what? So what? This is, this is not the, the big deal. I think that too many people out there, 
and this is going to sound conspiratorial and it is not meant that way, but too many people out there are looking to exaggerate the emotion, exaggerate the importance or the the uh, uh, impact of different events happening around the world. And in order to, once again, sounds con- like a conspiracy theory, but in order to take advantage of the movement. To make money in the market, all it has to do is move in either direction. People made a lot, a lot of money last Monday when the market tanked a 1,000 points. They made money on the way down, and they made money back on the way up. So it's not not critical which direction the market moves for some of these people as long as it moves. Now, with treasuries being a little bit cheaper on the open market, interest rates being a little bit higher, makes the dollar yet even a little bit stronger. Does that affect us? Yeah, it does. It affects some of our earnings of the international uh, companies out there. It affects our imports and exports. Uh, Makes uh, imports a lot cheaper coming in. Our exports a lot more expensive. But, I I mean, we got the largest economy in the world. We can absorb that for a uh, pretty much a long period of time. Where it hurts is the smaller emerging market countries the dollar getting stronger makes their currency weaker and affects their economy on a much greater scale in relation to the commodities they buy and the exports they have that kind of stuff so yes it's going to affect the world's economy but not ours so much not nearly as negative as people would like you to believe so when you see headlines talking about it's official china's selling off our debt eh, so what so what it's no different than your local bank selling your mortgage to another bank does that affect you no does it affect the bank that sold it Eh, not really does it affect the bank that bought it not unless you default then uh, then we got some ripple effects Different subject. Up next, we're going to talk about Fannie Mae going back in time. You're going to love, love this. Wait until you hear it. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Do you remember 2007? Remember 2008? You know, it wasn't that long ago. It's getting further away every day, obviously. But um, apparently the federal government doesn't remember 07 and 08, especially going into an election year next year, apparently. But Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, these are the the government agencies that uh, back... Home mortgages, they, they, they take the risk out for the lending institution. And back in 07 and 08, just relive it real quick, real quick, we had subprime. We had ninja loans, no income, no job, no assets. Um, 
They were loaning money to people with as little as 3% down, sometimes 0% down. No way in heck they could make the payments. They didn't even do background checks, nothing. Okay, and that caused a subprime bubble. Subprime bubble popped. We had uh, a lot of anguish and pain and gnashing of teeth during that time. And so the pendulum started swinging the other way where people had to have 20% down. You had to verify your income, verify assets. You had to uh, uh, make sure you could pay the loan back, make the payments on the house and that kind of stuff. Well, apparently that's just being too restrictive and not enough people are, are buying homes and taking out mortgages. So Fannie Mae comes out and wants to make it easier, easier for working class families to get a loan. So here's their ideas. First of all, back to 07, 3% down. No longer need the 20%. We're going to adjust that back so that you only need 3% down uh, on your loan. And uh, we're not sure that's going to help enough people. So we're going to change what a qualifying home is. So they're going to include the income. Listen to this. Let's lenders include income from non-borrowers within the household, extended family members, that kind of stuff. So if your parents live with you, shoot, you can include their income in qualifying alone. Current population, current uh, demographics, they say, uh, the mortgages... Uh, Access to the mortgages doesn't fit the typical family structure uh, we have today, especially some minority groups such as Hispanics, where it's common to have extended family members contributing toward the household income. So now we can count that to help qualify for a loan. Furthermore, if a family has borders, people living in their home that they're charging rent toward, They can count that income now as qualifying income for a mortgage. Fannie officials said their research indicated that extended households have incomes as stable or more stable than other kinds of households at similar income levels. They they feel it reflects today's economic reality where many people live in non-traditional households with multi-generational family members, friends, and or borders. But of course, it's structured with safeguards that maintain high standards of safety and soundness. Nothing can go wrong there, eh? We're setting the bubble up again. In future shows, we'll talk about how to take advantage of that bubble and how to make money when it pops again. Because it's going to. This is... I'd like to say this is history repeating itself, but this is going to be worse than history repeating itself. People are, are going to make this stuff up. They'll have mom move in, get the mortgage, and then kick her out to the nursing home. I, I can see that happening all day long. Borders, rental income, suddenly now we're classifying rental property as primary resident and being able to to loan money against it. Now, speaking of mortgages, uh, I saw this in the Washington Times. Our friend Stephen Moore. I'll use his name because he used his name. I'll give him attribution. It's in the Washington Times. 
His column is called Why I Can't Get a Mortgage. Now, you've all heard of Stephen Moore. He's been around a long time, wrote for the Wall Street Journal. Now he's at the Washington Times. Big guy, very, very smart, written a lot of books. He went to upgrade his house in Potomac, Maryland. Going to trade up from his current home. Can't get a mortgage. He was denied everywhere. Now, he names the banks in his articles. I'm not going to do that. I got enough issues in my life. But... uh, He was going to put 25% down. Obviously, he had the income, had the assets, had the backing, had the credit record, all of that kind of stuff. Couldn't get a mortgage. Now, he's got no problem with banks not loaning any money. He's got the problem as to why they won't loan any money. Of the 07-09 housing crisis, virtually all the defaults were people who put no money down. He's putting 25% down. He's had a mortgage for 30 years, never missed a payment, that kind of stuff. What got him? In the last 30 years, he made a late payment on his credit card bill, and he's got some unpaid parking tickets. That disqualified him for a mortgage. Now, given what we just talked about with Fannie Mae, how can anybody with a straight face, say that this is right. You get a man that's going to put 25% down. He's upgrading. It's a great neighborhood. Never missed a payment. Long history. Paid a couple credit card bills late and got some outstanding parking tickets. Uh, No, we don't think you're going to pay your mortgage. Now, I believe Stephen. I've talked to him. And he's a straight shooter, but this is classic as to what's wrong with the government getting involved with something that's none of their business. None of their business. Fannie Mae's new guidelines going to show probably a median net worth of about $22,000 for these loans. Net worth twenty two thousand, and yet a solid loan with twenty five percent down, with a well known guy that does very well in life with him and his family in a great neighborhood denied. Absolutely incredible that this is the way things are working right now. With twenty five percent down, he's not going to walk away from his equity stake. With three percent down. Shoot, you throw the keys on the counter, and you walk away, let the bank have it. Absolutely incredible to me. But that's our life. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.